1: For a lot of high schoolers and their families, November is a stressful time of year because it's approaching peak season for college applications.
0: And the whole thing feels very overwhelming to most of these kids. They're hyper, hyper stressed.
1: Doug Belkin covers higher education.
0: And then they're filling out these college applications, which are, you know, a considerable lift. And this is the culmination of three or four years of work and planning for a lot of these kids. They feel like their identity is on the line as to where they're admitted and where they're going to study.
1: Things haven't always been like this. How many did you apply to?
0: I don't remember. I'm so old, but probably five or six. And that's typical, actually. The percentage of students who are applying to seven or more schools has pretty much doubled in 10 years.
1: The process of applying for college was already intense, but now it's been whipped into a frenzy. One of the linchpins of the college admissions process, the company that makes the SAT, has been feeding that frenzy. And it's been feeding that frenzy with data it gathers from students and licenses to universities all over the country. Today on the show how a test that was originally created to help level the playing field has instead become part of a cycle of lower acceptance rates and higher stress. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Thursday, November 7th. The SAT was created about 100 years ago under the theory that colleges could create a more equitable admissions process if they could tap into a bigger pool of
0: students. They wanted to find other smart kids from different parts of the country, and they had to figure out a way to identify who could do college work and who was going to go places in the world. And so they they came up with this exam.
1: Did the SAT achieve what it was supposed to, like level the playing field and make it possible for colleges to find smart students from around the country that would have otherwise been overlooked?
0: Yes, it did. And then a lot of folks say it's gone too far.
1: This test, that was conceived of as being a great equalizer, is now a central component in the college admissions industry. Today, around 2 million SAT tests are taken every year. And there's a whole raft of test prep, tutors, and consultants that has grown up around it. Another, lesser known piece of the industry that's grown up around the SAT is coming from the nonprofit that administers the test, the College Board. The College Board has made a business out of collecting and selling access to data from test takers. And that's really taken off under its current CEO.
0: So the College Board brought in a very smart guy named David Coleman who was a former McKinsey consultant.
1: When he came in in 2012, Coleman's mandate was to figure out how to sell the SAT to more people. So he made a few moves.
0: He redesigned the SAT to make it more accessible less intimidating, and he has opened up these different fronts to sell more of these exams.
1: What did he say about the redesign of the SAT? What did they get rid of?
0: He said they got rid of the fancy SAT words that you may recall when you took the test. I remember learning the words garrulous and hirsute when I was studying for my SATs in the 80s. Alacrity. (laughs) Alacrity. Okay. There you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Coleman also tried to find more business.
0: One thing they've done, for instance, is just increase the number of kids who are taking their tests. How? They've lowered the age of a student who can take the PSAT, the practice SAT, from 10th grade to 8th grade. So that just brought in more customers. They've made this much more available to different schools around the country. And probably the biggest thing they're doing is they're getting states to contract with them to offer the SAT as a mandatory test that a student needs to take to graduate from high school.
1: More students taking the college board's tests meant more people paying for them. This added to one revenue stream for the College Board. But Coleman also looked at other ways to increase revenue. One big one was the data that the College Board was collecting from its test takers.
0: One of the, the services that the College Board offers is called a student search service. And so when a student is going to take a test that they offer, the SAT or an AP exam or a PSAT, they will fill out a survey and this survey will have a couple dozen questions about who they are, what they want to study, what their self-reported grades are, what kind of colleges they may be looking for. And then this information is packaged and it's sold to schools who are looking for students who fit that profile.
1: So wait a minute. Do students have to give away all this information about themselves, like their grades and their interests?
0: Yeah. Well, you don't have to. It's optional. You don't have to uh, answer those questions. More than 80% of the kids who take the exam do check the box that they do want it. And there's a lot of questions as to whether 15-, 16-year-old kids are in a frame of mind to be able to think through the implications of having their data packaged and disseminated and, and essentially sold to different schools. But they do have an option to opt out of it.
1: Now, to be clear, this data collection program, the Student Search Service, had existed since 1972. But as colleges have become more serious about recruitment, the College Board has offered them more serious data about who they can market to.
0: It creates a, a data profile of this student uh, along with a survey. And that information is packaged, and they have millions of these you know, students on file. And, and then a school will ask to buy students that fit a specific profile, and they will pay the College Board 47 cents for every, uh, every student profile, every name that they receive.
1: Can you give an example from your reporting of things that schools have done?
0: For instance, when Vanderbilt in the 90s was trying to go from a regional school to a national school, they were buying names of students in states where the kids weren't coming from, so the Pacific Northwest, the Northeast, so just geographically trying to increase it. And then they were looking for smart kids with a SAT score of at least 1,200.
1: The College Board would provide schools with incredibly specific data on students.
0: You know, maybe they play soccer, they live in Wyoming, they're girls, and they scored between 1,200 and 1,500 on the PSAT. You know, they can slice and dice that any way they want. And there's actually a lot more than that. The college board breaks down the neighborhoods, the zip codes from which these kids come from. So you can find out how many kids on a street or in a neighborhood went to this school already because that would indicate that this kid is a, a, a hotter lead
1: All of this new data gave colleges a clear picture of the students they wanted to apply to their schools. And that had major consequences for the students themselves. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday. And pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance— with Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR Rockstar with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more.
0: This episode of The Journal is brought to you by KPMG. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference. KPMG make the difference.
1: Welcome back. After a student fills out that personal survey about themselves, the College Board packages that data together with a rough estimate of that teen's SAT score. And with those factors combined, the colleges can license profiles of the types of students they're looking for.
0: Schools can then turn around and say to the College Board, we would like to buy 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 names of kids with this information.
1: And what did the colleges then do with these names?
0: So then the schools immediately turn around and reach out to these students. They send brochures. They send emails. They send a lot of information to the schools. And so if you speak to a student who takes the PSAT, within a couple of weeks, they start getting a deluge of brochures. One of the kids I spoke to, he said that he got between his sophomore year and his senior year – 5,000 emails and brochures from schools, most of which he wasn't interested in. So there's a huge—
1: 5,000?
0: 5,000, yeah. Yeah, and I don't don't think he's that unusual. Yeah, yeah.
1: What does the selling of this student data do to the number of college applications?
0: It is one more way that the schools can market themselves and— induce students to apply. And what happens in the mind of a 16- and 17-year-old student when they start to hear from a school that they've heard about, they think has a good reputation they might be interested in, is they think, hey, this school is interested in me. I should apply. They want me to come there. That's the connection that often gets made.
1: And how does the licensing of this data fit into the College Board's overall strategy?
0: So there's two things that are happening. From the college board's point of view, what they market themselves as and what they're sort of the public face of it is that their goal is to get more students who otherwise wouldn't go to college to go to college. So their idea is that college is a good thing, we want more kids to go, And if we can identify students who can do good work in college and get that information to the schools, then the schools can introduce themselves, market themselves to these students, and that helps the schools, and it helps the students. So it's a win-win.
1: One effect of this increase in marketing is a kind of distorting effect on the way students apply for college. Many think they're being recruited and are applying to more schools. But there's a catch
0: Sometimes these schools are reaching out to students whose SAT scores are well below the average of the kids that they're accepting. So they may be inducing students to apply who don't have a particularly good chance of getting an acceptance. And that's sort of heartbreaking for the students.
1: So students are applying to more schools, but the universities are rejecting more students, which means the admissions rates are going down for schools, not because they're admitting fewer people but because they're getting more applications.
0: I'm thinking of Tulane University, which had a really big ramp up in applications because they moved from a good regional school in the South to a national school. They would generate 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 applications at the early part of the century, and now they're getting, uh, you know, 40,000 applications. And the size of the class hasn't really changed. They're a pretty good example of what's happening around the country at these very elite selective schools.
1: Last year, Tulane bought 300,000 names from the college board. Is having a lower admissions rate or a higher rejection rate, is that beneficial for the colleges?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's central to the identity to a lot of schools. Judging any kind of organization by the people who can't get into it is uh, human nature. The best country clubs turn away the most people. The longest line at the nightclub is the hottest one to get into and the one you want to go. Dancing in. It's the same with schools. The more people they can reject, the more prestigious, selective, and elite they appear. There are some schools where the selection rate, the admission rate is below 10% and even below 5% now.
1: And so, if a lot of this frenzy is being fueled by data collection, how much money is the College Board making from the licensing of this data?
0: So from their tax returns that a not-for-profit has to file, and that's open to the public, called the 990, they say that they generated $100 million, but that includes other things beyond just student search. So it's some portion of $100 million is how much they generate from this student search service. And that's essentially doubled in about 10 years.
1: Did you ask the College Board CEO, David Coleman, about this?
0: Yeah, and his take is because of this sale of data more kids are going to college who otherwise wouldn't have gone to college. So this is a net positive for the students and for the country and for the economy. So everybody's a winner from his perspective.
1: The College Board says that how this data is being used is beneficial. It helps students access scholarships and diversifies applicant pools. But there are questions about how the College Board gets that data. Are parents aware that their children are being asked for this personal information?
0: No, Um, some do, but most don't. There's a bunch of challenges happening around the country from parents who aren't happy that their students are consenting to give their information out without the parents knowing because these are minors. And so the parents are saying, you shouldn't be asking my 16, 15, 14-year-old child. Now, some of these are eighth graders, so 13-year-old child, if they want to give away their information and they're citing state laws that prevent this. So there's a lot of friction around this idea of whether or not these minor students should be able to consent to give their information away.
1: Several states have laws prohibiting the sale of student data. In Illinois last month, nine state lawmakers asked the state attorney general to investigate whether the College Board was violating laws to sell or rent data without parental consent. The College Board says those laws, quote, are not applicable to the student search service. And these students who you spoke with, like this kid that got 5,000 emails and brochures and so forth, do they find it creepy or just is it just part of the process?
0: Most of the kids I spoke to were very fatalistic about it. This one student I'm thinking of who got 5,000 brochures and emails said, the college board owns the test. This is how it works. We live in their worlds and they set the rules.
1: A huge story this year has been the college admissions scandal, which is something different entirely. It's criminal in nature. People are going to jail. They paid to cheat on the SAT. They paid off admissions officers or sports coaches at schools around the country. How does this proliferation of college applications play into that scandal?
0: So the desperation that William Singer was able to capitalize on for families who want to get their students into these selective schools is propped up in part by the college board.
1: And William Singer was the mastermind of that college admissions scandal.
0: Yeah. So they are at the center of the storm of helping to make this college admissions process a real frenzy, kind of crazy process. And in that sense, they're part of a a broader problem that these families were reacting to.
1: This seems like the as you describe it, with the college board at the center, not not the college admissions scandal, but this proliferation of applications, this increase in rejection rates, decrease in admissions rates, this frenzy that the kids are going through as they apply to colleges. It seems like it's a cycle that is just feeding on itself. Is there a way that it ends?
0: A four-year university degree is sort of a blue-chip educational benchmark for American business right now, that may change. Things are beginning to shift toward vocational degrees, toward more uh, things that are more closely aligned to the labor market, which may not be a liberal arts degree or school as we have envisioned it. So in that sense, the direction of academia is beginning to tilt a little bit, but that's a few years away, I think. mostly in this country right now, people are beginning to understand that there's something wrong with the way the system is set up, the way the admissions is set up, and there's a lot of focus on it. So I think this scrutiny is good, and I think things will probably at least become more transparent so people can get a better ability to judge how schools are operating.
1: That's all for today, Thursday, November 7th.
0: The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal.
1: If you like our podcast, follow on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We come out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening.